Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I didn't think I'd be able to go to college. I spent my high school years reading Seventeen magazine and writing letters to Justin Bieber. My guidance counselor said to me, Daryl, as far as I can tell, the only thing you have done in the last four years is play soccer. I said, what's wrong with that? He said, Daryl, you were playing women's soccer. That's weird. I really wanted to go to college. The admissions guy said, can you look up your SAT scores? I said, sure. How do you spell SAT? But then my teacher said, maybe you can go to electoral college. But I told him I didn't think Justin Bieber would marry me if I became an electrician. He said, no. Electoral means, look, just take this note home to your parents. When I heard about electoral college, I didn't think they would take me because my grade point average was minus 4.8. They said they didn't care. As long as I got enough votes, I could go. I needed a scholarship. Electoral college said I could go for free if I was a Trump elector. I said, you mean the guy on The Apprentice? He's awesome. It's so great that there's a college where they're not all snobby about your grades and scores. Electoral college is so... Um... I forgot what I was supposed to say. My parents used to say it doesn't matter how popular you are. They were wrong. At Electoral College, that's all that matters. I'm from Wyoming, and it's mostly like bears and antelopes. But they were like, we don't care. Wyoming is as big as California. And I was like, OMG, I thought I was the only person who knew that. And now he applied early admission to the College of Cardinals, like Colin McEnroe. (laughs) Right. So, yes, today we are talking about the Electoral College. Um, it doesn't really quite work like that. But that was fine work by Kion Wolf, Lydia Brown, and Patrick Scahill. So we're going to talk about this thing that it comes up, you know, at least once every 16 years when we're really disturbed by the way the election came out. Maybe it comes up more often than that. For certain people, it does. Some people think about it a lot, uh, write about it a lot, analyze it a lot. Maybe at the top of that list uh, of people is our first guest here today. I want to say later in the show, you will get to meet an actual elector, but that comes later. Uh, here at the top of the show, I mean, really, if there's a person who's a bigger expert in the Electoral College than Akhil Reed Amar, I would like to know who that person is. Uh, Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University and the author of The Constitution Today, Timeless Lessons for the Issues of Our Era. Welcome to this convoca- conversation, sir. Well, I admit I am obsessed, so thank you for, for the, that honesty. So could we begin at the beginning? Maybe not the beginning. Let's skip over the elections of 1796 and 1800 because they're a little bit different. And uh, people like Alexander Hamilton were trying to game the Electoral College. Electoral College, And uh, we got the 12th Amendment. But sort of in the early 1800s, maybe you could just begin by sort of saying, what was this understood to be? Uh, my sense is that it was even kind of understood in a different way than we understand it now. Well, I think you started us off in a really brilliant way because most people focus on Philadelphia and they focus on Article 2 of the Constitution that gave us an original electoral college. But as you just mentioned, an amendment that, – that system screwed up, uh, uh, crashed and burned early on. So, so the framers were not perfect and we know that because an amendment was required. You just mentioned it. It's the 12th Amendment and it was required – Because under the original Electoral College, the person who comes in second for the presidency 
is automatically vice president. Now think about that. That would be, you know, Hillary Clinton having Trump as her vice president or Trump having Hillary Clinton as his vice president. And can you spell assassination incentive? <laughs> um, so, um, uh, and that wasn't just um, hypothetical. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who had cooperated together to help draft the Declaration of Independence, a Southerner and a Northerner, ran against each other as soon as Washington leaves the scene. He's president for the first two times, and everyone votes for him, and people don't really run. They just stand for election. Mm -hmm. Now Jefferson and Adams come along, and they're friendly, but they're frenemies. They run against each other, but it's not too intense in 1796. And Adams wins, and Jefferson comes in second, but very shortly thereafter, they really start moving in different directions, and they, they head up increasingly polarized political parties. I know that's never going to happen again in American history, having these polarized political parties, but believe it or not, it happened once. Um, and Adams moves in, to the right, and Jefferson moves to the left, and these are the sitting president and vice president, and now they really start to hate each other, and there's a rematch between them in 1800, and now it's not a tame affair. The parties are going after each other, hammer and tongs, pretty close to lock him up, lock him up uh, on both sides, and um, in the aftermath of that, the Constitution is amended, and that's where you started. Our Electoral College isn't the one that the framers came up with in Philadelphia. It was the one that emerged in the aftermath of these two uh, elections between Jefferson and Adams. We call it the Twelfth Amendment. And in that Twelfth Amendment system, voters vote separately um, for president and vice president. The, the formal electors vote separately, and as a practical matter, the, the citizens are, you're not voting for two people for president, you're voting for a ticket. Trump and Pence, or Clinton and Kane, and that's a 12th Amendment thing. It's designed to make the world safe for political parties. Um, because there is going to be partisan competition because it makes no sense that the person who comes in second for the presidency should automatically be vice president. So that's actually the origins of our current system. And I'll say one more thing, and then um, you're going to jump back in, I'm sure. That 12th Amendment system was designed in the shadow of slavery because everyone in the South pretty much votes for Jefferson um, and everyone in the North pretty much votes for for Adams, that happened in 1796, that happened in 1800. The, the swing states are the states in the middle um, between the North and South, um, and they, they would go for um, Jefferson the first time, and excuse me, Adams the first time, and Jefferson the second. But without the extra electoral votes that Thomas Jefferson is getting because of slavery, because the South gets to count its slaves as part of its electoral vote um, calculus. That's part of the three-fifths compromise. Without the 13 extra electoral votes that Thomas Jefferson is getting, because his states basically have slavery and they, and they get extra votes because they have slaves, without those extra 13 electoral votes, John Adams would have won even in 1800. Was there ever the notion that these electors would be persons, well, men, we should say, men of sagacity, who, who in fact might say, well, that was a nice try, voters, but um, in fact, as electors, we have a, a better plan? Not really. Um, that, that, the the, the lead-in was brilliant about playing on the word college. Of course, that word doesn't, in fact, appear in the Constitution. Um, it's what we call it. Um, but... Um, 
you and I actually both did go to a college, and and presumably we got an education. And, and if I asked you, name an important member of the House of Representatives over the course of American history, you know, you'd scratch your head because they would Nancy Pelosi or James Madison. You know, people would come to mind if I said name an important senator. You could you could come up with one, a governor, whether it's Sam Houston, you know, or Rick Perry or whatever, uh, Jerry Brown. But and I say to you. Name an elector in all of American history. Neither of us could ever name, you know, someone who, who actually intervened and made a difference because from the beginning, with due respect, there are basically nobodies from nowhere who have no real mandate to do anything other than just to register the, the, the will um, of the voters on election day. And then so the obvious question is, so why have them at all? Why have this extra wheel? And I hinted at the answer earlier when I said, if you just had straight up direct election, the South loses every time because a huge portion of its population is enslaved and they can't vote. But with an electoral college system in which each state gets a number of electoral votes depending on its population, and you can count slaves as part of that population, although with a three, you know, at, at three fifths with a with a discount, well, that's going to give the South an extra boost in the system, and that's going to explain, for example, why for eight of the first nine presidential elections, it's a Virginian who wins because Virginia's a big slave state by 1800. Way more um, free people live in Pennsylvania than Virginia. Way more voters live in Pennsylvania than Virginia. But Virginia has more electoral votes. Thomas Jefferson's Virginia because of slavery. We have the Electoral College for that reason. So just very quickly here, and then we'll go to break. Jim Himes is going to join us. We're going to have some more conversations uh, with uh, with you about this. But So now we don't have slavery anymore, but we still have a, a proportionality problem, right? If you live in Wyoming, you and 143,000 of your neighbors and friends uh, are, worth, <laughs> are worth one electoral vote. If you live in California, Florida, New York State, you and 500,000 of your friends and neighbors are worth one electoral vote. It takes more of you to generate uh, an electoral vote. So so there's would one way to fix this just to be just proportionalized and stop basing it on the number of members of Congress plus senators that you've got or whatever. Just just actually base it on uh, pretty much as close as you can get to the same number of voters equaling one elector. You might think so on the basis of back of the envelope math, but I think in the end that's not quite right. First of all, I come from California. I used to think, you know, it's this is not fair because we're a big state and, we, and, 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 and Wyoming gets overcounted because the number of electoral votes is the number of seats you have in the House of Representatives, and every seat, uh, state has at least one seat, plus two senators. And every state, even the small one like Wyoming, gets um, two senators. So you might think it's the small states that are really unfairly advantaged. In fact, it's the swing states and, and the big swing states, the Ohio's, the uh, uh, Florida's, the Pennsylvania's, the North Carolina's. Um, so, so the real differential isn't so much um, small state, big state. It, it's swing state versus safe states. And you might think, okay, well, why don't we just make it proportional? That'll be better overall. In fact, that would probably introduce even more of a skew in the system. Here's why. Right now, the Electoral College isn't great, but it isn't hugely skewed toward either the Republicans or the Democrats. Yeah, I know um, Hillary Clinton um, won the popular vote and lost the Electoral College, and so did Al Gore, and they're both Democrats. But the day before the election, Al Gore, you know, people were thinking he might win 
the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. And John Kerry, if he'd gotten 60,000 more votes in Ohio, suppose he'd been an Ohio-born person, um, in 2004, he would have won the Electoral College while losing the popular vote by several million. So right now, it's actually not that skewed for one party or the other. But if you did proportional, it would actually end up being skewed to the Republican Party. And here's why. The Democrats tend to win more big states, winner take all. The Republicans tend to win more states overall, the Wyomings of the world, especially states where no one lives and they get that extra boost. But right now, those are two offsetting skews. Republicans win more states, and especially states like Wyoming. Democrats win more big states. But because of winner-take-all, that balances it out. But if you got rid of winner-take-all and moved to a proportional system or moved to counting by congressional districts in every state, that would actually skew the system pretty solidly toward the Republican Party. All right. We'll ditch that idea. We've got some other ideas, like the so-called NPV compact. We'll talk about those. When we get back, we'll grab a quick break. We'll come back with more of Akhil Reed Amar and Jim Himes, our congressman. Electoral College, and they'll meet to stipulate who the voters have selected to be the winner in each state. Now the number of electorates. One of the people who would like the Electoral College to at least behave differently, uh, if it continues to exist, uh, is Congressman Jim Hines. He represents Connecticut's 4th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. He's joining us by phone right now. Uh, Welcome to our conversation, sir. Hi, Colin. Good to be with you. So what are you calling on the Electoral College to do? We should say that you've you've caught uh, Trump disease. This uh, initially emerged as a tweet. Uh, But uh, flesh it out for us. What, What is it you want the Electoral College to do? Sure. Well, I, I think you put it exactly right. The, the, the Electoral College, of course, is how we elect a president, and it is a group of people established in the Constitution. Now, and, and it's people, right? It's not computers. It's not algorithms. It's not you know some program that looks at the votes in a particular state and, and, and automatically votes the way those votes would indicate. It is a group of people. And if you dive into the people who wrote the Constitution, you see that it was intended to be a body that would guard against somebody who's not qualified, if I can quote Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Paper Number 68, who said that it's there to stop somebody who is not endowed with the requisite qualifications for being president to become president. And so my call to, to, to be fair, call, to be fair, I think he wrapped it and he said that's cause for elimination. He had to rhyme something with qualification. Anyway, continue. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> anyway, um, and, and, and let me be clear about how I, I, I feel about what Donald Trump has done. Um, you know, his positions, whether it's building a wall or, or uh, uh, you know, repealing the Affordable Care Act or his appointments, you know, none of that stuff do I like very much. But that's, of course, in bounds. Uh, you know, uh, that's, those are, I guess, Republican positions. What is not in bounds is trashing the American intelligence community, uh, saying that they don't know what they're talking about, and standing up for the Kremlin. Uh, what is not in bounds is constantly putting out, I hesitate to use the word facts, but facts that are incorrect, like that there was two to three million fraudulent votes in the presidential election. That's, that's just not true. Uh, and it's certainly not in bounds to be running uh, a global empire, or, you know, business empire, while you're president of the United States. So those three things at least to me, and this has nothing to do with Democrat or Republican or ideology, raise serious questions about the qualification of this individual and the loyalties and the the preparation of this individual to be president. So I think the Electoral College should do 
what it is there to do and reflect on whether this guy should be president or not. So, I mean, as a structural matter, so what is it? It's uh, 306 to 232. So you'd really need to, I mean, to, to change it. Uh, to get him below 270, you'd have to flip around 37 votes or to get her up over uh, 270, you'd kind of have to do the same thing. I, I, I haven't heard a number larger than 20 being kicked around. Of uh, They call them faithless electors, which I think is kind of a disincentive. Uh, maybe we need a different <laughs> name. But I mean, I, I don't know. How likely is it that you could get that, that number, the, the requisite number? Well, uh, let me say a couple things. I don't, I don't think it's very likely. Um, you know, it's never happened before, but I think it's worth thinking about. And, and, and by the way, I'm not a big fan of the Electoral College. I kind of think that the people of the United States ought to elect the president. But as long as it's there and it's there, um, you know, it should be something more than just sort of this algorithm, which converts votes into, uh, into a vote. And one, one other thing, Colin, you said her. It won't make her the president. That's not at all my intention here. Again, I'm not, I'm not making a democratic argument. And in fact, as a practical matter, the idea that the Electoral College would hand the election to Hillary Clinton, I think, is, is, is impossible. But, you know, they could choose someone else. They could choose one of the Republicans who ran for president. I guess, theoretically, they could choose Mike Pence. And I, I don't agree with these guys on a lot, because uh, I'm a Democrat. But, um, but, it, but, but they wouldn't scare me. They wouldn't raise fundamental questions with me about the fitness of the individual involved to be to be president. But you're right, this is probably not a high probability of success gambit. And I, you know, I also have to acknowledge that it would be unprecedented. Uh, the Electoral College has uh, never acted in this way, um, you know, but it's there. And it's part, part of the reason it is there is to have the ability to act in this way. Uh, and in, by the way, in this case, interestingly enough, when the college was set up, the idea was if a majority of Americans voted in a way that installed somebody who was not didn't have, in Alexander Hamilton's phrase, the requisite qualifications. Um, the idea was that the Electoral College would overrule the majority of American voters. In this case, they would actually be going with the majority of American voters, who by a margin of three million votes, um, voted for somebody other than Donald Trump to be president. So I guess the, the, the follow-up here is, I mean, right now you're, I, I think, as like a, a lot of people are, talking about the disconnection between how people voted and what the Electoral College is going to do. You're also talking about ways in which, even though Donald Trump ran as a very unconventional, unconventional and transgressive candidate all the way through the campaign, some of his post-Election Day behavior seems to fall even below that that strange standard that he established for himself. He's even below his own baseline. But I mean, so but realistically, probably we're not going to overturn the results of the election. Do you have a significant interest either through constitutional amendment or the somewhat easier path of the so-called NPV, that national popular vote uh, compact system uh, of changing this? I mean, or is it just something we do or talk about on those days when we're really upset, like in 2000 or, or now? You know, I have, I have, as long as I've been doing this, I've said that I would support a constitutional amendment, and it would take a constitutional amendment to get rid of the Electoral College. You could, as you point out, there are proposals that would kind of get you around it. 
um, that would require, you know, electors to vote, uh, you know, according to the national popular vote. There's a bunch of proposals out there, but um, I, I would certainly support that. I mean, let's let's take a step away from Trump. I've, I've been pretty clear um, that I don't believe this man is qualified to be president. I'm very scared about what he might do when he is president. Um, but let's step step away from Trump for a second. You know, I guess this would be the third time in our history where the Electoral College would have uh, put somebody in the presidency who lost the popular vote. So forget about Trump. How does that feel to anybody, um, you know, to a new president who's marching down Pennsylvania uh, Avenue on his way to the White House or her way to the White House, knowing that the majority of Americans didn't want him or her to do that? That's a that's a funny situation. It's sort of it's kind of a reverse mandate. And so for, just forget about Trump for a second. Uh, I'm just not sure that, that there's really any utility to this body. Now, now, maybe there was back in 1780, you know, back when people felt as much loyalty to their state as they did to the United States. But I, I just think it's an antiquated institution that causes all kinds of problems. But hey, as long as it's there, let's have it there for a reason, not just as a, as a relic of, of, of a bygone era. Right. I, I, I like that argument anyway. It, it's weird. It probably shouldn't be there, but it actually has the capacity to do something interesting and useful right now. And chances are it probably won't. Congressman Jim Himes, I know you have a busy day piled upon many, many busy days to come. Thank you so much for taking some time to join this conversation. Thank you, Colin. Take care. All right. That was taped earlier. Uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, Akil Reed Amar is <laughs> a sterling professor of law and political science at Yale University uh, and the author of the Constitution today, Timeless Lessons for the Issues of Our Era. So it isn't really the way it works, right? I mean, you can't just sort of say, well, we don't like the way you're acting after the election. So, I mean, you, you, it structurally it's possible, right? Is it? So there was some stuff that I agreed with and some not. Let's just go back to the very beginning. He made the mistake that all of us you know, we're likely to make, but that you didn't. He started with Article 2, with Alexander Hamilton, with the Federalist 68. That's not the electoral college system we have. We have a 12th Amendment system. Forget Hamilton. That system failed, and the system that emerged in its place was not about, in general, wise people second-guessing the voters. It was nobody's from nowhere, potted plants, just implementing what the voters had done on election day. So then why not just let them vote directly? Because the South loses every time in that world. Thomas Jefferson would have lost, and the South wasn't willing to put up with that. So now, now the question is, why should we have it today? And maybe we shouldn't. But here's where he's right, and you're right. Um, we have to remember who these electors are. They were, um, th these 302 people pledged to vote for Donald Trump. Of the 538, only 70, I think, even had their names on the ballot in any of the states. People voted for Trump and Clinton. Now, I voted for Clinton. I share his uneasiness about Trump, but I have to acknowledge that by the rules of the game that we set up, Trump won in the states that he had to because of the Electoral College. She won more votes overall, but that wasn't the game. The game was to get to 270 electors, and these people are people who are pledged to Trump, these 302. So what are the odds that someone who's pledged to do that is going to agree with Jim Himes or you or me, you know, who, who voted on the other side? They're not, except, and here's now the key, I do agree. We have this system. Let's, let's try to see what it, it, you know, what good it, it can do. If something happens after election day that's huge and that would have changed the minds of the people who actually vote on election day, that's something that possibly 
could be taken into account. I'll give you one obvious example. In 1872, a man named Horace Greeley, um, as in Go West Chuck, man, ran for president against Ulysses S. Grant. Now he lost, but he won a whole bunch of states. He won a whole bunch of electoral votes. And then you know what happened? He died. And he died before the Electoral College met. And so there's this real question whether you're supposed to vote for the dead guy, you know, just because that's what you pledged to do. That would seem to be a changed circumstance that might require you to, to call an audible, to improvise if someone has a stroke. If some new bit of information comes up that, yes, this person is on the Kremlin payroll, well, that would be pretty dramatic. And I could imagine even Trump electors saying, wait a minute, that's not what the voters who voted for Trump Trump really signed up for. Yes, I'm a potted plant. They basically, you know, I promised to vote for Trump, but the people who sent me, you know, who, who, who voted for me might actually want to change their minds if they knew this new information that I have and they couldn't have because it came, uh, um, uh, it arose after election day. That's the only real situation that I can see where an elector has any kind of genuine um, legitimacy for going against what they promised to do when their when their names got put on the ballot. Well, their names didn't even get put on the ballot when they when when in, in most places when they were picked to be the relevant electors. You know, before we run out of time because we have to do a little uh, pledge break pretty soon here. Do you want to get rid of the electoral college? I mean, if I could hand you a magic wand, would you get rid of it? I prefer direct election. That's how we pick every governor in every state, and it works pretty darn well, thank you. And the president is the governor of us all. I believe in the idea of one person, one vote, counting everyone equally, whether they live in a city or a county uh, or in the countryside or, or, or a suburb, whether they're northern or southern or black or white or green, whether they're in a, a safe district or a swing district, count every vote equally. That's a deep idea, one person, one vote. And the current electoral college doesn't do that. So in principle, yeah, I, I, like the, I, I like the basic democratic and American idea of counting every vote equally. It's how we pick governors in every state, and it works pretty darn well. But it's going to be very hard to accomplish. Um, as a practical matter, you might be able to improvise a direct election system without a formal constitutional amendment. The congressman briefly alluded to this thing called, the, and you did earlier as well, Colin, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. It's a weird system, but just in a nutshell, if enough state legislatures choose by law to basically say, for future elections, we're going to give our state's electoral votes to the person who wins the national popular vote rather than who wins more votes in our state. If enough states join that bandwagon, formally you have an electoral college. They still meet in December. But but whoever wins the national vote would actually have a majority, would automatically have a majority of, of electoral votes if the system actually were to get off the ground. So formally, you'd keep the electoral college, but as a practical matter, you'd, the game would become winning a national uh, vote rather than winning enough um, pluralities in enough states. All right. There are some little uh, wrinkles in all that. There but are lots of wrinkles. Lots of wrinkles uh, in all that and things that we would have to discuss. But it is sort of a, uh, a deciding, a beginning point uh, for a lot of the kinds of conversations that we're talking about right now. Thank you so much to Akil Reed Amar, Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, author of The Constitution Today, Timeless Lessons for the Issues of Our Era. Thanks, Colin. And we're going to go back to 1800, even though uh, Professor Amar doesn't like us to. What would it be like, uh, you know, if Alexander Hamilton did get all mixed up uh, in the election of 1800?
Alexander. You've created quite a stir, sir. I'm going door to door. You're openly campaigning. Sure. That's new. Honestly, it's kind of draining. Burr. Sir. Is there anything you wouldn't do? No, I'm chasing what I want. And you know what? What? I learned that from you. Three hundred and six listeners believe Jonathan McPants produced today's show. Two hundred thirty-two believe that I did. Lydia Brown and Patrick Scahill appeared in our intro, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Jill Stein. Keep up with our doings by liking the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook. On tomorrow's show, polyamory. And now back to Colin. No time to explain that. Brace yourselves is all I can say. All right. So joining me in studio now are Michael Fotos. He, he lectures at Yale and is an assistant professor in the public policy graduate program at Trinity College. And Barbara Gordon, uh, who was elected on November 8th, you elected her as one of Connecticut's uh, slate of seven Democratic electors. She will place her vote uh, next Monday at the state capitol in Hartford. Barbara, I'm going to begin with you. Barbara Gordon, by the way, is I personally have borne witness to three generations of Gordon greatness uh, here in the state of Connecticut. Uh, And certainly no one uh, familiar with the Democratic Party in Connecticut is not familiar with Barbara Gordon. But this is the first time you've been uh, an elector, correct? Yes, it is. It's an honor. What did you have to do to get this? I did lobby. I lobbied my town chairman. I lobbied the state chairman. I mentioned how many years, and I will not mention it here, I have been very, very involved in politics since actually I was 17 years old in Hartford. And so I was not able to go to the national convention, but I wanted to be part of what I thought was going to be a very historical first woman president. Well, so much for that. But um, <laughs> but so on Monday, what do you actually do? What happens on Monday? Well, it's a lot more ceremonial than I ever thought. We meet in the Secretary of the State's office. We have a very formal photo taken There are a couple of things we need to sign, apparently, and then we are escorted into the Senate chamber by the foot guard, and at that point, we, I gather, we all sit at a table and literally sign our vote. Mm -hmm. Do you get anything? You get a a certificate, right? You get something, I think. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but you don't get, like, tote bags or hats or anything like that. (laughs) Probably. Yeah. I was an elector, and all I got was this dumb Trump presidency T-shirts. Um, <laughs> all right, so um, so you wanted to do this? Why? Just because it's sort of part of being? I just felt it was an honor, and that it was the one thing I had not done politically yet. I've been to national conventions, state conventions, hmm. written out thousands of envelopes, made thousands of phone calls, and I thought this would sort of be the frosting on the cake, mm-hmm. not realizing it was going to be a little bit of a bitter cake. Well, we should say, you were a Clinton elector. Yes. Uh, if um, Trump had won the state, you'd be at Pilates class on Monday, right? I mean, um, there'd be nothing for you to do on Monday. Exactly. Um, so there are some um, electors who are saying that they would like to have an intelligence briefing, uh, given the precariousness of, of, of things, and that p- perhaps they should have that before they do anything rash. Uh, you already know what you're going to do. I would imagine you don't really... I mean, it might be fun to have an intelligence briefing, but I don't think it's going to change what you do, right? Uh, No, definitely not. So did you sign a letter anyway, just saying, yeah, sure, give us one? We haven't signed anything yet, actually. (laughs) I I imagine we will be doing a lot of that on Monday. Yeah, but in terms of, like, demanding an intelligence briefing, you're not going to be part of that? Or would you join in just to, you know, maybe— I might. I I 
certainly wouldn't say I wasn't interested and please don't come back to me unless there's something different mm-hmm. to tell me. No, obviously this isn't really an opportunity for you right now. Can you imagine being an elector and being a so-called faithless elector? Could you imagine circumstances under which you were sent up there to having been chosen as an elector for candidate X, deciding that candidate X was a cuckoo bird and, uh, and, and voting for somebody that you had not? been elected to vote for. you imagine doing that? I cannot. No, I really feel sorry for those who probably do feel like changing. Yeah. But are under a lot of pressure. So you, but you can't imagine. In other words, I guess what I'm asking you is, that do you, is that because you take so seriously the notion that you are essentially bound, at least by the sentiment of the voters? Absolutely. And it's my own personal, you know, I, I always say I bleed blue blood as a Democrat, <laughs> and I can't even imagine changing. All right. So, um, Michael Fotos, I want to get you into this conversation here. Um, you have written uh, about um, this this whole question. And you've got sort of three different arguments for why the Electoral College is basically uh, an okay thing. So um, let's talk about those. One of them is kind of geographic in nature, right? You can sort of even look at this election, and I think you point out that uh, Hillary Clinton basically ran the Acela Corridor uh, uh, plus California, and then there's sort of a lot of red in between, and and that maybe there's an argument for saying, well, the Electoral College, it sort of at least makes sure that geographical regions get into play. Uh, that's correct, Colin. I think uh, there are two reasons why you want to have geography or what used to be called section uh, in the early uh, years of the Republic involved. And the first one is that the coast, you know, the United States is a maritime nation, and there's a natural inclination for coastal elites to look eastward or westward for their economic and political rewards. Uh, that leaves the heartland behind, and I think we're in an era where uh, the the consequences of that, uh, of ignoring the heartland, are really apparent. If you go out to the Midwest and, uh, you know, you could imagine growing up in a mill town in the Ohio Valley like I did, and Every time the president gets the red carpet treatment in Beijing, another mill in Huntington, West Virginia closes. And uh, the second thing about the geographic aspects is that when a, a, an electoral coalition embraces or encompasses a larger cross-section of the economic potential of a nation, that coalition is going to be biased toward policies that relate more to the general public good, which ultimately leads to a, a connection between policy performance and economic performance. And so uh, so the geographic um, spread of the Electoral College, I think, it achieves two goods for the republic. Um, yeah. And so one of the other arguments that you make, if I understand it, is that that, that government, governments and, and societies are held together by agreements. And this is essentially an agreement about how things work. And that reminds us that agreements, kind of in the way that Barbara is saying, agreements matter. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, the United States is based on federalism, and federal comes from the Latin word for covenant. So we've covenanted together to, to, to be part of a community. And, um, and so the, the Electoral College is one of those federal remnants. It's a vestigial appendage of the federal era. But it's one that reminds us that we're all bound together as, 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 a, as a nation, as a union. It also reminds us of that key federal principle of limited power that the Electoral College actually limits the power of the voters so that all public authority is limited in this country, even the power of the voters, the power of the president, the power of all the branches and departments of government. And I think that reminder, especially given what's happened on November 8th, is incredibly important right now. Right. So one point you make in your paper, one point we should make now. In some ways, it would be, I mean, one of the things you want to look at, whether it's you, me, Akhil, Amar, is 
let's say we got rid of the Electoral College, what would be the unintended consequences? What would be some unforeseeable consequences? It's hard to make that argument in this moment because we have like already the most <laughs> horrible, <laughs> unforeseeable consequences of my lifetime. So, um, so what do, you know, how do you look at that? But it does, and so with all that, said with all that on the table, it does seem to me that you could get more of this rather than less of this, that with a national, one of the problems with a national popular vote, just a general, not the compact, but a general uh, campaign based on an entire national possible popular vote. Imagine that I'm a somewhat charismatic and well-funded billionaire. I could just go after the most possible votes that I could get. I could hit California, New York, and Florida really hard, you know, try to build up a vote lead there, flesh it out with some other stuff that it wouldn't really necess- it wouldn't necessarily mean that I would have to go get the most the will of the people behind me in this much more widespread way that we would like to romantically believe would be the case, right? I could still have a strategy that got me a lot of votes in some concentrated places. That's correct. I mean, we can, you know, we can look around the world today and probably presume that the greatest threat to democracy in the world today are these elected dictators. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Putin, Erdogan, Sisi, you know, that's a long list. And, uh, yeah, you know, the United States is not immune, as a number of people have pointed out. I, I think uh, I mentioned that in my paper that Marsha, Marsha Gessen at the New York Review of Books has written about this. And, um, you know, as long as political climbers aspire to anointment as centurions of the people, you know, we're going to we're going to face the risk of elected dictators. And uh, I think the federal principle is uh, extremely important in, in the 21st century. I think our challenge as uh, as civic practitioners, as artisans of civic society right now, is to find a way to update federalism and make it relevant to the challenges we face today. So what's the, I mean, in other words, I mean, to me still, the most compelling argument is it's just not fair. It empowers a voter in Wyoming uh, at four times the strength or so, uh, roughly four times the strength of a voter in California or Florida or New York. Why should my vote in New York or Florida be one-fourth of a vote in Wyoming? Well, it's like the you know it's like buying four tickets to the one in four hundred million Powerball or one ticket to the one in four hundred million Powerball. You know, it's it's a it may be four times as strong, but it's still not very important. The um, um, the reason, you know, fairness. Uh, one way to think about it is the concept of political equality, which is I think is how um, um, how this is characterized in the in the political science departments where I work. Um, is that equality is an instrumental good in a, in, in a federal system like ours. Our primary goods are the more perfect union, domestic tranquility, justice, and, and so forth. And so we are constantly asked to choose among lesser evils or greater goods when we make policy choices. So, um, you know, for example, the Americans with Disabilities Act, we trade off one form of equality, equality of treatment, for another form of equality, equality of opportunity. And as a society, we've made that choice, and I think it's a good choice. But it's just typical or it's, or it's, it's natural for all policy choices to have that consequence. I'm going to go back to our elector here. So, Barbara Gordon, Monday you go, you go to the ceremony. I hear there's a, quite an after party, too. Like the electors <laughs> oh, get totally hammered. Have somebody drive you. Have Tracy drive you. All right. Don't be on the roads like that. But, but the, so then you're all done. You never have to think about this again. But you can think about the system. How do you feel about the system right now? Do, do you think we should switch away from electors towards a national? Are you persuaded by anything Michael says? Uh, I respect what he says, but I'm, I've got to tell you, after living through 2000 mm-hmm. and now 2016, and seeing that Mrs. Clinton won by over 2 million votes, I have a very difficult time with this. 
scary, and I will be thinking about it long after Monday. Um, I just I find it very wrong that so many more people voted for her, and she lost. So it kind of reminds me of, and I'll probably get a few people upset over this one, but the Second Amendment was about a musket, mm-hmm. and now it's about the AR rifle. I mean, I think sometimes you need to change for the betterment of whatever situation it is. Yeah. We're actually going to be doing a show fairly soon about the Constitution overall and why if it hardly ever gets amended. I mean, when you think about it, like, you know, it's... After the first 10, it's like, you know, it takes forever to get anything amended. Okay, that's a whole other conversation. But in a way, Michael Fotos, bad cases make bad law. So we've got a bad case right here. On the other hand, you know, Trump's argument is not completely dismissible. His argument is, look, if I if this were a football, he doesn't use this analogy, but if this were a football game and, and I got 18 points and you got 27 points and I said, yeah, but I kicked six field goals. I kicked a lot more field goals than you did. You'd say to me, well, yeah, but I happen to know that field goals aren't worth as much as touchdowns. So I tried to score more touchdowns. That's Trump's argument, right? Like mm-hmm. I, that's not how the rules work. The, wor- the way the rules work, I did what was smart. Yeah. And um I mean, and they both played by the same rules. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think uh, Professor Amar made this point in his uh, diagnosis of the 2000 election, you know, that the difference um, there was obviously you know, uh, former Vice President Gore won the popular vote, but uh, then Governor Bush won the electoral vote. They both played by the same rules. And the same with with uh, um, with Mrs. Clinton and her campaign. Um, you know, I can't diagnose what went wrong in a campaign. But what I do know is that you had four states that have been hollowed out by uh, a, a suite of national policies that favor coastal elites, um, the bankers, the Davos crowd, the Aspen crowd. And, um, you know, and you can, you know, Bob Putnam wrote about this in an amazing book about our children and his hometown and on the shores of Lake Erie. Um, you know, this this part of the country is really hurting. And um, if, if a coalition, a, a presidential coalition is going to ignore that uh, that pain, uh, yeah, that's part of the that's part of the game. There's a political price for that. All right, so we're gonna have to go out to. I'm gonna let you have the last word, Barbara. We're gonna have to go out in about 30 seconds to uh, pledge break. Please support this show, particularly if you like having a live elector in studio. What did you want to say? <laughs> Again, I'm very honored. I'm honored to be on your show as well, Colin. Well, let's not get carried away. <laughs> I'm looking forward to Monday. I think it'll be an exciting day. No matter what. All right. Just don't drive. Really, huge after party. (laughs) Don't drink the punch. That's what I've been told. (laughs) Don't drink the elector punch. To the rest of you, nice people are going to come ask you for a pledge. How about doing that if you love what we do? States get a number of electoral votes that equals their members of Congress. Whoa. So some votes carry more weight. That reason, some wish it would go away. The letter is here. I hope I got in. Dear Kion Wolf, unfortunately, we've exceeded our admissions capacity at Electoral College, but we would like to offer you a full scholarship to Trump University. That's the perfect place for me to get my degree in women's studies.